Hey everybody, welcome to AIPT Comics Podcast. This is the 11th episode, and this week, unfortunately, Forrest Hollingsworth will be out. He's a little sick, but replacing him in his stead is Chris Hassan. Chris, say hello. Hello. Chris is, um, he's been with AIPT for years and years now, but right now he's focusing in on X-Men Mondays, something that he's curating with X-Men editor Jordan White. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? So Monday's X-Men Monday feature will be the third in the series, um, and a little treat for the fans out there, uh, I'm going to reveal the title to get you excited. So, oh boy. Yep, this one will be X-Men Monday number three, Excalibur, Mammo Max, and Single Cyclops. Single and Cyclops. Single Cyclops. That's the relationship status of Scott Summers. It just rolls off your tongue, doesn't I know. it? <laughs> and uh, also another treat we'll have uh, on this edition is uh, your first look at the Uncanny X-Men number 19 cover. Whoa, so that when's is, that come out? Uh, I want to say June, maybe? I'm not okay. sure. But yeah, I, I, you saw that, Dave, right? I did, and I think it's going to break the internet it's in half. break the internet. So whatever you got to do on the internet, get it done Sunday. Because Monday, it's gone. The internet's gone. <laughs> so I just wanted to give you all a heads up that at the end of the show, for an hour, I spoke with Scott Snyder back on Wednesday. And uh, yeah, we talked everything. We talked Justice League. We talked about big developments in DC Comics stories in the next whole year. We talked about his indies. We talked about the writing process. It's it's actually going to be a really good interview. And I, and I hope you stay in, in, until the interview because it is well worth your time. I will stick around. But before that, we always start our show by talking about the latest comic news, the stuff that's really hitting us on the social webs and in our conversations around the water cooler, if you have a water cooler at work. And in the first bit of news, which is a bit of sad news, uh, Mike Diodato Jr. is leaving Marvel Comics after Savage Avengers. <gasps> I know. And he's been with Marvel for, what, 25 years? Very long time. I remember when I first got into Marvel Comics, he was, he was drawing Avengers. So Avengers and Thor. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know. And I'm 80. I'm like 85. <laughs> You are. You are quite old. It, it has come out that Mike is going to be teaming up with Jeff Lemire on a new series called Berserker Unbound, which looks like a Conan in the future or a Conan comic where he goes into the future, into the now and is transported there. And I'm sure hijinks uh, ensue, hmm. which is kind of fascinating because right now in Marvel Comics, they've been teasing the fact that Conan the Barbarian is going to be popping up in the current storylines. Right, I was going to say, if you want to do Conan, you should, this is not time to leave Marvel. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that Mike is leaving with Savage Avengers, which actually has Conan on the team. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know, it's kind of a fascinating thing. I'm hoping this new Dark Horse series that he's doing with Jeff Lemire will sort of play around maybe with tropes and stuff and you know, comic book storytelling. Well, I think, that, I mean, the main news is he, he's leaving because he wants to do creator-owned stuff, right? That's He wants right. to do his own stuff. Mm -hmm. Which I respect it. I'm fine with it. I, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of his work. Um, I actually did. I, I prefer his older stuff. Um, when I was talking about back to the Avengers stuff, his his style kind of evolved into like a more realistic, uh, lifelike kind of style. Mm. And I know, like in Dark Avengers, he had like Norman Osborn looked like Tommy Lee Jones. He often does a lot of like real life modeling. It seems like with his characters, right. which that kind of always threw me out of the book. I'm ne never a fan of that when uh, when they do that. So, right. But I, I think it's great. I think it's if he wants to go do that. I think I think it's uh, the eventual fate of all these these guys who work in the big two. 
Mm. Um, and I, I think it's true of anyone who has a job. You know, we we all no one stays at the same job forever. So so yeah, I I, I, I applaud him. Yeah, you know, it's a testament to the fact that he loved the Marvel characters to stay with Marvel for that long, and it's going to be really cool to see him doing something creator owned. And you know what? He could probably do that Tommy Lee Jones likeness on a character, and it'll actually work for you, right? Because it's no longer a character that you're familiar with. It'll be a brand new. I one. want him to go do his creator owned Tommy Lee Jones adventure book, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll be reading it. You heard it here first, folks. There's a new Tommy Lee Jones creator owned book. <laughs> Mike Diodato coming out soon. All right, guys, in our next bit of news, the IDW CEO is stepping down. And the reason this is a little bit old news, it's about a week and a half old. But the reason why I bring it up is because we talked about this in a sense uh, about six, seven weeks ago on this show when we found out that a person in IDW was loaning the company $28 million to help operating costs with TV and the film division for IDW Entertainment. And that same person, um, his name is Howard Jonas. He is now going to be the CEO. Uh, Kerry McClugan is stepping down as CEO and only been CEO for seven months. And now... Uh, Jonas is stepping in. It's kind of a interesting, I don't know, there's a bit of drama there, isn't it? This guy who gave IDW all this money alone is now the CEO. I don't know. It seems a little funny, fishy. I don't know. What do you think, Chris? You completely sidetracked me when you said his name is Jonas. Oh, I geez. thought of Weezer. So. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't read IDW regularly, but um, I've read a bunch of those Transformers uh, hardcover collections. So I keep up with them every now and then. And I, I keep up with the news. And I, I've seen they've had a lot of troubles recently, a lot of higher level executives swapping positions and moving around. So I don't know. I, I hope they can get, get everything straight because I think it's important that IDW is on the market. I think the more comic companies we have, the better. And the more successful they are, the better. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's really my take on it um, without really diving into the news too much. I don't know. It'll be interesting. I'm definitely going to be watching what's going on with IW, if, especially if they've got all this investment. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of cool stuff. I mean, aside from the sure. the Hasbro properties, I know they put out a lot of like artist collections where they have the original original prints and everything, and they, they publish yeah. them in nice books. I've, I've never never seen them up close, but I've, I know there's one of... Uh, of John Burns' uh, X-Men work that I wouldn't mind owning. And I actually saw at uh, the last Boston uh, Fan Expo, uh, Chris Ryle, who I guess was a former executive at IDW. I'm not sure his exact pos- uh, position there. But mm-hmm. he, he moderated the panel with John Byrne that I, that I hmm. attended. So, yeah, I got to spend some time listening to him. So In our next bit of news, um, Batman, or Detective Comics, and uh, to be more specific, is going to be reaching its thousandth issue Ooh. this year. And DC Comics is going to be going all out with celebrations for Batman, including, and this is the crazy part, they're going to be having bat signals light up across the world Ooh. on September 21st, which is uh, Batman Day to celebrate the character on top of all these other celebrations and talk about comics go bleeding into reality. <laughs> it's, I hope they have one in Boston because that's where I'm located. I'd love to see the bat signal up there, even though I know it's just for a celebration, but you never know. Maybe it'll, someone will answer the call. So if they do it in Boston and they shine this light, would you dress as the Joker and start smashing windows in downtown Boston? <laughs> oh, wow. You totally flipped it. You're saying that the signal will make people go I'm saying there's going to be a crime wave across the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we need to stop the Batman. Oh, my God. You're right. Wow. This is this. You know, this is over my eyes. I'm actually quite worried now. I'm sure there'll be no real life jokers doing anything bad. Well, if if they do, it's it's because they listen to this podcast and they got the idea. Yeah, exactly. Me. You planted the seed. <laughs> Maybe that's my master plan. Is it possible that AAPT could be doing anything for the 80th anniversary of Batman Day? 
It's very possible. Ooh. <laughs> Another seed <laughs> I've planted. <laughs> this is why I don't come on the show enough. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's a big year for Batman and Detective Comics. We'll definitely have reviews for the thousandth issue and also the 80th or whatever. They have like a big thick book uh, reprinting a lot of the classic Batman stories. Uh, we'll have a review of that too. And when is Batman Day again? Was that September twenty first? Okay. If you can't wait that long, people, just wait to the end of this show because who we got on? That's a good point, Scott Snyder. Yeah, <laughs> one of the most famous Batman writers who's now writing Justice League. But Batman is in that. He's a, he's a big part of Batman lore. Speaking of lore, mm, it's a good. Segue. In our next bit of news, Dark Horse is printing uh, a comic book for the Orville, which is basically like Star Trek, which is like lore. Wait, wasn't Lore, what was the name of uh, Data's brother? Yeah, Lore. His name was Lore. Wow, look at that. You know more about Star Trek than I do, maybe. That's good, because I've never watched the Orville. (laughs) I have nothing to add to this. Anyway, I'm a big fan of the Orville. I think it's a great show. It's more drama than comedy, but it's kind of fun that it has a little bit of humor. Mm -hmm. It's basically giving us Star Trek The Next Generation sort of storytelling in a whole new package. And it has some great stories. It's actually on the cutting edge, I think, of um, interesting issues that we're all dealing with right now, like diversity and gender, politics, stuff like that. Anywho, the comic is going to be written by David A. Goodman, which is who is one of the producers on the show. Mm. And so it actually bridges season one and season two. They're calling it Orville 1.5. So it actually will be in canon, too, giving you more reason to read it. That's cool. So it's kind of like a Star Wars thing. Yeah, basically. That's always good. I feel like the uh, TV adaptions never really mattered for a lot of these properties. So it's good that they yeah. kind of made them more in canon and more in continuity. So, yeah, that's right, cool. Right. So that fans who want it can pick it up and know that it's part of the story. All right, guys. In our next segment, we talk about our favorite book of last week. I say book because we're only doing one pick this week because that Scott Snyder interview is quite long and we want to give you all the time you have in your commute to work to listen to it uh so in this segment we always start by talking about what the highest rated review was of the week via comicbookroundup.com and this week it was die number four by kieran gillen and stephanie hans and what's interesting is (laughs) image comics on saturday actually tweeted out a quote of ours from the die number four review that we had written up and in it uh, Nathaniel Murr said, almost every word in the book makes the reader feel something. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Way to nice go, Nathaniel. Quote. That is a good pull quote. Um, as you might have guessed from if you've been listening to this show, I have not read Die yet. And I really <laughs> need to. Because this thing makes the top of the list. Uh, I think every, every single issue has been in the top two or three. Wow. So, yeah, get out there and read it, folks. Anywho, I am just dying to know what Chris's favorite book of last week was. Well, interestingly enough, it wasn't Die, but (laughs) Kieran Gillen used to write Uncanny X-Men, and my favorite book of last week was Uncanny X-Men number 13. I was Ooh. my segue was kind of like a Kevin Bacon kind of thing. I was trying to work to it. I like it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so that was written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Salvador La Roca. And yeah, I'm just really loving uh, everything post X-Men Disassembled. Started off uh, on an interesting note, kind of a a down note with that giant size Cyclops Returns issue. But I I just love, I mean, I love the character of Cyclops. Um, If you guys followed AAPT's Cyclops Week, I was behind that. Um, So I love love that he's back and I love that Wolverine's back. And it just just feels like X-Men. I don't know if you've been reading this, Dave, or just checking it out at all, but... It just this is this is good X Men. This is uh, the team is back together. The the remaining mutants and they're just going. Cyclops' plan is just go after every villain who's still out there. If the X Men are going to die, if this is the end of mutant kind, 
they're going to go out with a bang and take care of all the problems. So Is he killing the villains? He's not, actually, because that was a big thing uh, around the X-Force era that, you know, he, he created a kill squad. And he actually mm-hmm. points it out to Wolverine. He's like, no, we're not doing that anymore. So this is that, that Cyclops who's back, who's admitted he was wrong, and he's kind of revamping his tactics. Um, and they fight the Dark Beast in the first issue. So it, it looks like a lot of the coming issues is going to be a lot of major X-Men villains returning. So... Uh, that's exciting. And then uh, you'll see uh, on Monday that Uncanny X-Men number 19 cover. And you'll see who's on that one. Very cool. Is it Dark Beast? Is he on the cover? Uh, I uh, uh, re- uh, delete delete the recording. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. What, so about my you? Pick, what about you, Dave? My pick was Age of X-Men Prisoner X number one by Vita Ayala and German Jermaine Peralta. So it's interesting you picked Uncanny X-Men because that is the events of that story are in the now mm-hmm. in the main universe meanwhile in age of x-men i assume this is all happening in some weird pocket dimension is that right um i don't know maybe it's in his mind it's probably in his mind yeah because yeah because x-men is the super duper super mind man right Mm -hmm. he's a super uh, mind man (laughs) i like (laughs) hey hey i'm quoting that i'm quoting that Anyway, um, Prisoner X is probably my favorite tie-in to the main Age of X-Men series so far. Yeah, I I just felt like uh, Vita did a a fantastic job with the Bishop character, putting you in his shoes. He's in this weird prison. Beast has given him a hard time. Beast has this epic Amish beard that you have to see. Yeah, Beast is tough in this universe. And I'm not super. I'm not a super X-Men guy, so some of the characters I wasn't super familiar with. But I did know who like Gabby was, and she shows up in the comic, and she's kind of a jerk to Bishop. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating to me is that Vita lays out a couple minor clues to get your your imagination going as to what's going on because there's definitely a bigger thing going on and bishop is having these memories of his past self Mm -hmm. and it's not lining up with the current universe so he i think it's all rolling down a hill where uh, i think x-man if he is controlling them uh, is going to have some trouble going down down the road i just want to point out bishop is in prison because he was potentially in a romantic relationship with Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Scandalous yeah. on the Age of X-Men. Apparently. I was going to say, yeah, I, uh, based on the preview for Marvelous X-Men number two, which you can find at APT Comics, um, it looks like uh, Laura, too, is having some flashbacks to her life mm-hmm. in the regular universe. So I'm pretty excited that now we're getting into a lot of the cracks in the uh, the facade, um, and I'm excited to see where we're going. I also read Prisoner X, and the one thing I, I took away from it is I, I really... I was never a big Bishop fan, but I'm excited to see that uh, they're doing a lot more Bishop these days since uh, he came back. And it's exciting because you kind of, you are rooting for him because for mm-hmm. so many years, it was a, there was a weird time in X-Men history where he's trying to kill Hope. And he yeah. spent several years trying to hunt a baby across <laughs> yeah. time. So I'm glad that got fixed because uh, that's kind of a weird thing to walk away from. <laughs> yeah. But, he's a baby killer. Yeah. <laughs> attempted baby killer. He's always been sort of like a damaged person because he's from this future that's just like awful. Yeah, but it was uh, one of the good things about Disassemble. It was they had a lot of good witty banter with Bishop. He was kind of a fun character. Uh, he's kind of played the straight man, but I, I think they really did a good job, Brisson and Rosenberg and uh, Thompson, with his writing. So, so that's yeah, great. good pick, good pick, Dave. Thank you. I appreciate that. In our last segment of today, before our interview with Scott Snyder, we're going to be talking about the number one book we're looking forward to that's out next week. That book that we recommend you buy. And I'm going to start. Um, Batman Who Laughs, The Grim Knight, number one, uh, which is by James Tinian IV and Scott Snyder, with art from Eduardo Riso. This is 
the first issue where we get to know who the Grim Knight is. And if you don't know who the Grim Knight is, I don't. He's been popping up in the Batman Who Laughs. He's basically an alternate dimension Batman who is using weapons, guns. He is killing all the villains. He does not bat an eyelash at blowing someone away. It's kind of a fascinating twist on Batman simply because we all know Batman's one rule is never to use guns. So what made this version of Batman go in that direction? I had the privilege of reading this early thanks to uh, review copies coming out. And it lives up to everything you might expect. It it has a great origin story in there. And I just want to give props to Eduardo Riso. Growing up, I loved his series, uh, 100 Bullets, that he uh, did with Brian Azzarello. And his style is is unique from others. He's really good at that crime style of uh, art, where characters can be in a room in suits, and it's still very captivating and uh, rich, his art. And he does a great job with this, more so because he's got this crazy Batman with guns. Meanwhile, we get to see this new backstory, and there's a lot of hate, there's a lot of killing, and he nails it. He was a great choice for the book. I recommend it. I'll check it out. And who's the co-writer on that one? James Tinian. Oh, who's the other co-writer? Scott Snyder. (laughs) Wait, isn't he coming up? He is. And you know, he actually might talk about this book on the interview. Ooh. Crazy. Uh... So I'm realizing that my pick I just talked about, and I think I pretty much sold it. <laughs> the uh, Marvelous X-Men number two by mm-hmm. uh, Lonnie Nadler and Zach Thompson with mm-hmm. art by uh, Marco Faya. Yeah, so this is uh, Apocalypse is on the scene, and this is uh, Hippie Apocalypse, who's <laughs> preaching uh, free love and everything. The preview, again, that you can find at the, uh, the website, uh, it's Apocalypse introduces his son Genesis, uh, which is an interesting take on the, the relationship between the two. Because so I know he's just the clone in uh, the 616, uh, but here right. he's, a, he's his son. So yeah, it looks, it looks fun. And uh, the one question I have is, if X-Man controls everything and can see all, how do these little you know protests pop up? That's a good point. Yeah, so yeah. I'm interested in that. Yeah, and then uh, Extracts comes out this week too, which is the Apocalypse series. Um, so, but I'm I'm still looking forward to Marvelous X-Men more, just because you know I love me my my main X-Men. So, but but I'll check them all out. Uh, that's a cool pick, Chris. I, I'm I'm gonna definitely be reading it too. I really like the Alpha issue that Lonnie and Zach did. And I'm just, I'm all in on this little mini event. I don't know if it's a mini event or a full event, but it's, a, it's an event. It's, it's just an event, but yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. The, 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 that the, it's about like love suppressed love and stuff. It's mm-hmm. if you, if you'd said like, you know, a year ago, like, oh, there's going to be a huge X-Men event and it's about secret love. <laughs> you'd be like, what? <laughs> so, and, and Apocalypse is a hippie. <laughs> exciting and new. Speaking of events, uh, in our next segment, Scott Snyder talks about uh, the Year of the Villain, which is the big event starting in May in DC Comics, which runs all the way to November, which he reveals a few details about. So enjoy the interview. All right. On the show today, we have Scott Snyder, uh, one of the biggest writers in the industry right now. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Scott. Oh, it's a pleasure, Dave. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. So, all right. Justice League. It's one of the craziest books right now because the scope is insane. I mean... Every week, I, I, I'm surprised by twists and turns, and um, I'm just wondering, were there any ideas you had to leave on the cutting room floor because they were too big, or because editorial was, was like, no, we can't do that? Because to me, <laughs> there's so many crazy things happening in this book, I can't believe they're letting you get away with it. I know. No, there there really is. The cutting room floor is all in the book. I mean, they're, they're very kind to me at this point at DC, and, um, you know, it's a really... It's a it's a fun book, even more probably. I, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's probably the most fun I've had in comics between 
metal to now that runway uh has just been a, a blast there was something that just clicked when i was preparing to do metal you know the the pressure of batman batman is i, I am in no way saying that writing batman wasn't fun it was the ride of my whole life it was the intense peaks of joy and the intense pressure and anxiety that comes with writing that book um especially at the time that i did it when it's it had become um or was 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 um sort of slated to be by dc the barometer for the health of the sales of the company mm-hmm. um was just intense it was always very intense so it was you know month to month is it hitting 100,000 how do I keep it really, really personal and make it something that I block everything else out? So I, I say it's the best book I can do. And yet at the same time, you know, have some, some, I think, um, perception of whether or not it's, it's hitting the targets it's supposed to hit for the quarter. All that stuff was just, was, it was a lot and it was amazing and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I got one of the best friendships out of my life with Greg through it. Um, and I do it again in a second. So it's not that, but you know, it it was always intense. And with when I was preparing to do metal, I was really nervous. But, you know, I was so excited to get back together with Greg after having, you know, we talked almost every day, you know, we talked a few times a week while he was overdoing um, Reborn with Mark uh, Miller. But, yeah. um, you know, we, we the idea of getting to work together again was so exciting that it just sort of outweighed the pressure of doing an event. And because we had other things going on, like Doomsday Clock starting, and they weren't really sure how metal was going to affect the line. It was more mm. about us getting together and doing something crazy and fun at the time. And they weren't entirely sure how to take it, you know, either. They were a little bit skeptical, and there was some pushback about some of the ideas in it. Yeah. And so um, for me, uh, it was – I did all this research. There was like a period while I was working on All-Star Batman – which was another sort of factor in this where I, I wasn't anymore um, under the, I wasn't, no, I was no longer under the same kind of intense scrutiny and pressure to sort of deliver month to month. And I could actually explore Batman from this more prismatic angle. And that book became intensely fun for me doing Batman, like grindhouse road trip, mm-hmm. doing Batman, you know, in an, in a more, um, a more sort of fractured artistic way in one arc doing it a pirate story in another about alfred's mi6 days that it just sort of opened all of it together really was like a seismic change for me writing wise it doesn't mean that you know um i don't want to write the way i did before i do and and batman who laughs is very sort of much like a coming home to the way that i did black mirror and that stuff but it reminded me what happened was it that period really reminded me how important it is to have fun on a book uh, and have that fun be sort of the infectious energy of the storyline itself to some degree, especially when you're doing things that have cosmic elements, have big sort of comic book Kirby-esque, you know, um, sort of threads in them. And so I just sort of fell back in love with everything from, you know, Infinity Gauntlet, (laughs) Secret Invasion, all the stuff I grew up on rereading it. And so... Justice League is really my big love letter to superhero comics. So I wanted it to be something that had the ambition and the scope of the books that both inspired me, my imagination when I was a kid and as an adult and got me through tough times then. And and the way that they did that, I think, was by seemingly transporting you to the most kind of 
um, mind-bending and high-drama, soap-operatic kinds of stages uh, while still being passionate and personal and often resonant about the moment, even if that kind of um, resonance was translated into comic book language that was so lunatic, you didn't realize it at the time that this was actually a morality tale or it was about something that was you know, about something that mattered to the to the writer on a personal level. So that was sort of the compass for it. And so Justice League has been a real blast in that way. And, you know, the other thing that I'd say, and then I'll stop I, I, <laughs> talking about it, is that, you know, yeah. I, I wanted it to have the scope and ambition um, of metal and, and a different, but a different sense of majesty and, and a deeply character-driven story. Um, but also I think, uh, I want, I've never built anything that's been this expansive. I wanted it to be a series mm. that gave me a chance to build over almost 50 issues, you know, instead of Batman, which was, uh, arc by arc by arc. I always thought I was going to get fired after each arc. <laughs> oh, this was like a plan that I said, if metal works and you guys like it and it engenders justice league and this, this kind of, um, justice league books, there's one big story we're going to tell across multiple platforms where it, you won't realize it's one story for a while, but it goes through Odyssey and, and Dark, Justice League Dark, Justice League Odyssey, Justice League, Batman Who Laughs, Superman, Batman, all different kinds of things that we're, we're building so that it all kind of coalesces again um, once we hit uh, summer with this year of the villain. The year of the villain is kind of is a big sort of crescendo of stuff, but that leads to even bigger consequences. And a lot of it is is built out of the DNA of the Justice League story we're telling. So the two things are almost... I wanted it to be embrace the kind of big, over the top, um, zany fun and heart, you know, that of the comics that you know I, I grew up on, and also I wanted to build something Hickman esque and architectural, which is both things are really different than what I've tried before. You can see the fun you're having when you have Batman quipping, and and a lot of these issues. Uh, just for one example, yeah, and I, well, he can be comic relief a little bit now, you know, in the, right, in this right. book, so. You know, it's hard. When I started it, too, I mean, there was definitely I wanted the first arc above all to sort of just shotgun blast you with this is how this is how ambitious and out there and, you know, how many ideas are in the series, how, you know, for and I just wanted to almost attack you with like this is this is we're throwing the Legion of Doom and everything is. This is like the I wanted it to feel like it it was giving you more than your money's worth times ten, and once we got that up and running, now I feel like I can do the kinds of work that I was doing in the Thanagar uh, arc and in this arc that it's not slower really it's just more textured more character based and that's really how we're going to run the book from here into the end where the, the relationships that we've gotten to develop are really going to. Uh, to, to be put under the kind of stress tests and build and grow and, and fracture. And it comes to some pretty, I think, um, uh, pretty epic stuff between, you know, the, the leaguers. Something I noticed in Justice League number 19 that you used in the dialogue is where a character will say something in its black text, and then it will go to gray text in a second balloon uh, to convey that they're saying it under their breath. And I mean, I've been reading comics for a while, and I don't know if I've ever seen that before. Is that something you invented, uh, or is that something that you've seen before? I don't know where I saw it before. I started doing it. <laughs> I think I started doing it. I think it was in. Um, I think it was towards the end of our run on Batman, where I started. It was Gordon would, uh, would talk to himself more, uh-huh. and be sort of like you know something under his breath out of um, 
out of sort of, uh, un, you know, insecurity about his, his role right. as Batman. And so I've always loved that. I've always loved the technique. And, you know, here I think the characters, for, uh, one of the big sort of, I think one of the big, um, you know, uh, North Stars of the series is making sure that the characters that always are so aspirational and, and larger than life are really human. And so I love, I love having, I really love the interactions between the team members. I have such a good time with that, honestly, writing it. it and now that I have the hang of it too, it took me a little while to just, you know, as it does with any series, I think, um, for, for me to, to settle in and really feel like I have my versions of these characters down and I have their relationships down really well. Even on paper, I, I knew what they were and what the relationships would be. But when you live in them for five, six, seven, maybe 10 issues, that's when it really hits you and you're like, oh, I know these characters, you know, inside. Right. Now. The dynamics sort of come alive. Yeah, your version of them does, you know. Right. How far have you plotted out uh, just this Justice League uh, run? Here? Oh, it's all the way. I mean, so I'll give you a sense. I'll give you a little bit of spoilery stuff. So <laughs> okay. today, just today, I had a summit meeting on the phone earlier with um, Josh and uh, Williamson and James Tynan and with the bosses, with Bob Harris and, you know, Dan and everybody, uh, because we were talking about how to play out essentially the second half of 2020 <laughs> oh man and with that in mind like knowing what's set up basically in 2021 so um justice league this storyline with perpetua and the totality and all of it this the through line for it we built it um back in 2017 when we were doing metal i i said right and you know again um like as i said earlier the <laughs> the thing is like you know, you never know what's going to work. And there was a chance for us. Like, I remember just being like, well, metal might just flop. People might not be into this aesthetic. It might be too zany for them. They might not like it. it you know, they might be over me and Craig. They might be focused on Doomsday Clock. Like, who knows? And if that happens, that's totally fine. I'll do some creator-owned after metal and we'll figure it out. Right. Um, but when I saw how it was going over what I pitched them was the continuation of that story over the course of those, those two years. So all of it's one big architecture, but that architecture doesn't end right now. It didn't end with justice league. It extends through um, the end of 2019 into the first three or four months of 2020. Wow. So, and that's where I sort of said, okay, here's where our story really ends with perpetuating the totality, but it leaves room to build to something big that involves the whole line there if you guys want to do it if we can get it together so so the way that it rolls out right now is year of the villain starts in may and that was always our big essentially the beginning of our third act in justice league um and what happens is not to, to spoil too much in <laughs> may don't. in our may 25 cent issue uh lex luthor this is the part that i did with um jim chung uh lex luthor lets it be known that he has a plan to win the entire world over to the side of doom. And we don't know oh, what wow. it is, but you'll, yeah. you'll see how serious he is about it in that issue. Cause he does something really dramatic. Then in July, you'll see what that plan is with the culmination of this arc itself with the sixth dimension ends in such a way that Luthor reveals what that plan is, what the premise of year of the villain is there. And everybody, every villain across the DC will get, the opportunity to play in to his plan. And then that story will really run all the way until November 
um, in different books, but it gives every book an opportunity the way we used to do with um, Death of the Family or that kind of stuff, where it gives each book a prompt to use or not use, to use however they want to sort of elevate the story they were doing anyway. So it doesn't sort of pit everybody against Luthor or anything like that. It pits every hero against a villain of the creator's choosing in a way that's going to, I think, just give you a big summer fun blowout um, for your character. And then at the end of that, in November, that sort of ends with one a definitive victory for either the heroes or the villains. I won't say who. <laughs> and um, that engenders the uh, a, a, a kind of cataclysmic thing that comes out of the end of Justice League in December, January. And if we if that all works and you guys like it, come February, March, that's where we kind of do our big finale to all this stuff that and if not, wow. if you know, it, it can end in it can end in December, January. But my assumption is based on the way people seem to be responding, yeah. um, and I feel very lucky about that, we will build to this big big thing and be able to say, All right, you know what? And it's you know, I hear people saying metal too, I hear people saying crisis. Whatever, mm-hmm. I won't give anything away, but it's that sort of seismic giant thing that I want to do if I, if we're going to do it, let's do it. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm, I'm game, but our story, the Justice League story is planned out all the way through there. So it's not only planned out, but because we're having this baby, <laughs> which was yeah, a big yeah. surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Added on everything. I know. I know. When, when you know what's going to happen a year from now, does the anticipation kill you at all? Like knowing what I'm working on now, I'm working on Justice Do More, which comes after the Sixth Dimension. It coincides. It's it's you know every book deals with Year of the Villain in its own way, and ours, the heroes decide they need to um, go collect the pieces of the totality to recapture Perpetua, and those pieces are scattered through time. So they go back. Um, they they fight across the entire time spectrum of the DCU. Um, and so you get a lot of really fun stuff with that, with JSA and different different things that we're going to bring in that I think will be a lot of fun. Um, so uh, that is what I'm writing right now, and that begins in August. <laughs> wow, that's crazy how far ahead it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm all the way written through there. I had to be because I have to take May. I'm taking oh, true. The other wow, baby. so you must be working harder than ever right now. Yeah, yeah. The baby's actually due on Free Comic Book Day, which is insane. Oh, that's right. I saw you tweet about that. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna take about five weeks off entirely, so I had to get that far ahead. How do you pronounce the villain's name in Justice League number nineteen? Oh, Mixie. Oh God, dude, we fight <laughs> about this all the time. So James Tynan is adamant, like, 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 fight you, adamant that you're supposed yeah. to pronounce it. Mixie Spitlick. And I had never heard that. Really? That's interesting. I always thought it was Mixaplick. Yeah, that's what I thought too. So I always just say Mixaplick. He says Mixie Spitlick. When he comes over here, we have a summit, basically. We have a getting up, we call it a summit. But I mean, he comes up to my house maybe once a week and we whiteboard a lot of stuff. He's really helped me get ahead with a lot of things. Nice. Um, uh, I always say Mixie Spitlick to make him happy. So that's funny. I honestly just write say Mixie all the time just to Mixie. That, that's actually kind of cute. I like that. Yeah. Speaking of working with James um, and whiteboarding and stuff. I mean, you haven't always done this where you're working with other writers like Josh and, and James. Do you like or even prefer this sort of style of writing? Oh, a million percent. I mean, yeah, I, I have plenty of I wouldn't want I mean, I have plenty of places I can write my own really make something intensely individuated in mine. Like Batman Who Laughs is deeply 
deeply my book. You know what I mean? And Justice right. League is very much my book when I'm doing an arc, like Sixth Dimension. But um, the truth is, you know, I've never built anything without running it by other writers that are my friends. Jeff Lemire, James has been really my, you know, rock and sounding board for quite a few years now. But Josh, Tom King, you know, Kyle Higgins from before. I, I, I really, nothing has ever gone out the door by me that hasn't been read by at least two other writer friends. You know, I'm always about that. And so I, I love the collaborative aspect then of actually writing together because some of them, like I, I, my process is very much, um, I don't know. It's, it's different than my friends. Like, you know, James, for example, does not like to talk out an issue first. He likes to write a, a draft, and then I'll respond to that draft, and then we'll sort of work through it. So mm-hmm. when he writes a, an issue of Legion of Doom, he'll kind of map out a rough draft or an outline. I'll respond to it, so on. I talk the whole thing through multiple times until I know that I won't have to write a second draft oh, wow. before I start. So I, I get... So I, I verbally like to go back and forth about like, so I'm thinking it's like this. What do you think this? What do you think that? And then I get close enough that I certainly have to do edits. I don't write a perfect draft. But there's right. nothing gigantically structurally off with it by that point because I've drafted it just by virtue of kind of talking it through and and soundboarding it and that stuff. So a lot of the time they'll they tease me they're like oh we just have you on we have it on mute and we're doing other stuff and you just you're just talking into a void <laughs> right so the my process is pretty collaborative or at least involving of other people when it comes to my own stuff so i i'm not shy or don't feel at all into you know i i love collaborating officially as well so you know letting other writers in the door or or you know seeding parts of a story to them or rebound uh, bouncing off of their ideas or letting them take lead i've established myself enough and have enough places to go to do things that are completely my own that i feel like it only makes the the work richer and right. i'm very very um grateful to james not only for the parts that he writes individually which i think are stunning but um, for all the help he's given me with with my parts, just through the process I just described, where he he really keeps me keeps me on my game, and I try to do the same for him. You know, it's it's amazing because he was my student um, when I was teaching college, like year uh, ten years ago, really now. So you know, to see him grow into a writer that I really not only see as a peer, but someone who inspires me and who I admire, and you know, I learn from a lot is really a great joy. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't know why, but it reminded me of John Hamm, the actor, because he used to be an acting teacher. And there's all these actors who are now actors uh, that he taught. <laughs> I can't imagine. That must be really, I mean, talk about, that must be the most fulfilling feeling, right? You've taught these people and now they're at a, a level that you're at. Yeah. And, and there's so many that I, I'm really, you know, I marvel at their talent. I mean, Marguerite Bennett and Amy Chu and uh, Joel Jones and uh, even uh, it's funny because he didn't need the class at all. But uh, Matt Rosenberg was was in the class with oh, me. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, uh, Mags Visaggio. There's this whole crop of writers that that are revolving around you. It's like a it's a awesome. Movement. No, I mean they they they. I feel like I learn more from them than they do from me. But it was a joy getting to getting to work with them. You know, on every level. Chris Sabella, he was in my class, and Mike Marisi, and uh, yeah, they're they're a bunch. So I feel really 
really um, grateful for that opportunity through DC. I always loved, I taught a number of years, um, even when I shouldn't have been, like when I was already stretched too thin at different colleges at Sarah Lawrence and Columbia and NYU and that stuff. I taught comic writing um, and uh, I really missed it. And then DC gave me the opportunity to kind of pick it up again. And and I'm taking a year off this year because of the pregnancy, but I'm going to try to get back into it afterwards. Yeah, I mean, that's an itch you have to scratch if you're if you're inclined to do so. With DC Metal and then now Black, Batman Who Laughs, uh, I think a lot of people got really excited because they knew you from your horror roots. And so I want to take this one step further. If you were given free reign to write a horror story about any hero or, or villain from Marvel or DC, uh, who would it be and why? Oh, that's a good one. Um, there are a few, honestly. Um, I have a Spider-Man one in my head and I know he's a very bright character. I do like, believe Mm -hmm. me, I love my Mm Spider-Man, but Craven's last hunt was one of the stories that made me, I mean, I, my father used to send me my comics when I was away at sleepaway camp and he bought those and sent them to me week after week. I don't remember if it was that he had bought them and then was kind of siphoning them off because siphoning (laughs) them to me because I don't think it came out right then Mm -hmm. but the the weight and the suspense of seeing what happened in that series with Craven and Vermin and Spider-Man in the black suit buried alive I think there's room for something really spooky but I think above all Hulk is the one that I would like to do a real horror story and but you know what Al is doing right now, oh my God. which is so, so good. good. Yeah, with the Mortal Hulk. Yeah. What I, I have a different idea, and I pitched it to Capullo. It's very different, so I think there's room for both. It's called Hulk Smash Everything. But it's a uh, <laughs> nice so title. It, I know it's it's got it's believe me, it's got that bombast. It's got like yeah, everybody yeah. from Abomination, everybody in it. But it's um, it's horror. The other thing, I mean, um, I've wanted to do for a while is I know it sounds really wonky but um i would really like to write a detective chimp um story in that kind of um dave mckean art style like something very uh very um dark and noirish about him returning Mm. yeah i'm really i love that character and i'm glad we could bring him back with metal and now into dark but there's something that hits this very deep nerve (laughs) for me about (laughs) an, an ape that essentially was trying to learn tricks in the circus and couldn't you know, didn't have the mental capacity to do it, escapes, winds up finding, you know, a fountain of immortality and um, then discovers in some way that now that he's able to see so much more than he could before and yet he's incredibly, he's still limited by his in, his inability to kind of understand the greater mysteries of things. There's something very human in that and the idea of him becoming a detective and solving small kind of empirical cases is I don't know. It seems like an intensely, an in, an in, an an intensely kind of rich pathological kind of uh, sort of um, psychology, and and I want to do one where he goes back to solve the case that sort of um, allowed him to allowed him to escape his cage in the first place. And yeah, that's interesting. His like mor- mortality was like a blocker or something. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's the way that, that not to get too on the couch, but. For me, I think there a lot of the stuff that I do with Batman, really the whole the whole run is about him facing mortality in different ways. You know, Joker saying, you know, um, you're getting old, don't get old, be young with me forever. Oh, you rejected me. That's, you know, that was death of the family. Then Endgame is, well, I live forever. You're just a speck of dust. You thought your life had meaning. It has no meaning. 
you know, and so on and, and, um, zero year reframes him in those terms as well. And, and, uh, you know, and even, um, super heavy. So yeah, the idea of the thing for me, you know, I always feel like, um, I've always had sort of a deep, I think, uh, fear of how fast everything moves and how quickly mm. time seems to pass. And court of owls is certainly about that as well. And, um, the idea that, um, you have to, in some way, yeah, the, the more that you, the, the, you know, the more you sort of, uh, try and learn, the more that you feel, you know, oh, as I get older, I'm supposed to understand these things. The, uh, more disappointed you get about how little you'll be able to read, understand, you know, explore by the time it's over and how small your capacity is for it. And so for me, Detective Chimp plays into that anxiety tremendously, but also the flip side of it, which is partly, I learned from having kids, which is almost that when you give yourself over to the, to the smallness of it or the humility of it in some way and the wonder of what you'll never learn and how much is beyond your capacity to understand, there's an intense um, calm with that. You know, I often – and the reason I learned it from my kids, it sounds really insulting, but it's true. Like I remember looking at my older son when he was, you know, two and being like – or it was about one and a half, I remember, and he was trying to trying to explain something to me with his few words. He was trying to say airplane. He was saying epon, epon. I didn't understand. I finally understood. I'm like epon, whatever, you know. And I'm like, God, we are so dumb. Like he is so <laughs> dumb. He's so stupid. Like I love him, but yeah. you know, he he has zero capacity to understand yesterday from tomorrow. Zero mm-hmm. capacity to understand. We live in a country that is X, you know, square miles and that it's on a planet called earth. You know, it's like a cat. You look at a cat and try and explain the internet. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's just no actual, uh, physical capacity, neurological capacity for it. You can't like explain to a fish what math is. And when you realize you're a part of that system or you see that is actually you, that child, you know, in some capacity that, you know, there's a, for me, at least there's a, there's a release that says, well, anything I can understand that exists beyond life or beyond the sort of, you know, um, parameters of my own comprehension, uh, has to be something wondrous, terrifying as like the internet is to a cat, you know, or math to a fish, you know, or tomorrow to my son. And that's what detective chimp offers for me as a, as a, as a kind of, I think as a as a sort of um intersection of many different many different sorts of kind of um I don't know uh fears and also of uh I think of hopes that I have for my own ability to kind of come to terms with certain things. So I really want to use him. <laughs> that's like it's my whole zen. that's my my deepest longest pitch ever for <laughs> like a comic I feel like. I kept thinking when you like you were kind of touching on it over and over is it's a very zen outlook. And, you know, there's some, I can't remember the mantra, but there's some mantra like give up on everything to know everything or something like that. Yeah. Well, I've, it's so funny because I've felt, I, you know, the books that I love the most, I'm, I'm a bit, I love, I love reading about this kind of big, my kid is getting the same with my older kid, just really big, expansive human history stuff. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Sapiens was a, was the popular, really super popular book that was in this vein a couple years ago, but you know, the denial of death or the books about genealogy or, you know, all, I, I love, 
I love the kind of big machinery of human history from the beginning to now. Western, you know, I like reading with my son about, you know, he, he gets in all these history bees. He loves history and we do like a lot of, a lot of, um, Western history, Eastern history, folklore history. And it gives me, I think part of it's like, you know, Court of Owls again was about this. It was, I grew up down in, um, it's about, you know, around 21st, 22nd street in the East river in, uh, in New York city. And yeah. we used to go down a lot to the South street seaport, uh, towards wall street. And, uh, you know, it's one of the oldest areas for those people that don't know New York city. It's one of the oldest areas in the city. And there's a lot of architecture and cobblestones and things that are still there from kind of the city's founding days. And I was always really fascinated and in love with that area for that sense of sort of all the generations and the kinds of lives that were lived there that I would never know. And, at other times, that feels terrifying, but sometimes it just feels oddly comforting that you're part of this kind of mm. almost phantom lineage. And um, that's what Owls was about, was that sense of going back to that. I, I literally going back to places in the city when I was coming in to talk to D.C. because I had to come back from where I live now, about two hours out of the city on the, on the, on the ocean on the North Shore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would go into the office before it moved to California and talk about Batman and I remember having to try and come to terms with the fact that I have to switch over to Bruce Wayne and walking around and thinking about how little the city I knew uh, existed anymore. Everybody I knew had moved away. All the things had changed. And so therefore I started thinking about, well, Bruce Wayne only, you know, his power to know Gotham only exists in this small window. What if I weaponized all that history against him or weaponized that sense of grandeur or, you know, of legacy and, and against him and, and made him feel small and, and humble. And that's where the Court of Owls really came from. And so, you know, for me, there is, there is, you're, oh, I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to, um, I guess, get to that place where I'm not completely freaked out and terrified all the time of how, how fast everything's going, how little mm-hmm. I understand, how little I will understand by the time I'm an old man, all of that stuff. And instead, enjoy the exploration and then give yourself over to the notion that just like any other thing you look at in the animal kingdom, you know, a fraction of what, um, you, uh, what's actually going on in the world and anything that you can conceive of, whether it's death being, um, you know, a very particular afterlife or if it's death being boom down, you're dead. There's nothing there. For me, at least, not to disparage anyone that believes in any of those things, because you know you, you right. should and you can. But for my mind, I like to think in some way that it's almost if I can understand what it is, it must be something different and bigger. Because why wouldn't it be if it's sort of the greatest mystery? And in some ways, um, you know, we're on that same spectrum as all the things we look at and see as being, in, you know, uh, incapable of comprehending you know, some of the, some of the bigger, some of the bigger sorts of, um, uh, answers that we have for, for things that are small in the face of that bigger mystery, if that makes sense. My mind keeps going to how you're, you're plotting out Justice League so far out. And it's like, that's a, that's like a hoping it never ends sort of thing, but also like it's a time's a circle and all this process. I don't know. I don't know. I just keep thinking about Justice League. You're, you're, you're so far out and plotting it. But also it's a one large story, which is one reason why I like Justice League so much is because it pays off some of the things that you didn't meddle. Oh, it's definitely going to pay off. Yeah, I mean, it pays off. There are things... If you go back to Justice League 1, there's a vision that Martian Manhunter has. And 
He sees his son with a smile across it. He sees uh, one of the things that we just revealed, a human hand and a Martian hand. That was in mm-hmm. issue 17. It was revealed about Luthor's past and his past. Yeah. That was um, huge. Yeah, you see Starman. That's going to be in Justice Doom more. I feel like this gives you an edge. Not to, not that you're like in co- competition with um, like Marvel or anything like that, but it gives the arc an edge in that a lot of these other story arcs and other publish with other publishers, they only last a couple issues, then everything changes or things get blown up quite a, quite a bit. But knowing that you're creating this long uh, roadmap is is quite exciting. For a long-time comic reader. Yeah, no, I really... It's new for me as well, because as much as I've had long runs on, on Batman and so on, that was never the plan. It, the plan... I mean, I was always went into it honestly thinking each arc would be my last. Not because I didn't like it. I loved it. But again, Batman is a really intense gig. And, you know, I had a... I had the... Um, I was always willing to step off if I thought fans were not responding to my work um, because I didn't want to uh, uh, keep the character from from you know being what it could be. That doesn't mean that if I had something I was passionate about, I wasn't going to play it through. I was going to finish the story. But right. every story was only eleven or twelve issues. I didn't have a fifty issue plan. I had a I had two Joker stories I wanted to do. If you hated the first one, I wouldn't do the second one. <laughs> I, you know, I, and I had them both planned together. I had an origin in the back of my head. If I did it, how I might do it, you know, those things. But ultimately, Court of Owls, I was like, I'm leaving it all on the table. I'm doing it because I probably won't get another chance. This will be it. I'm doing it out. You know, Death mm-hmm. of the Family. I have a second part, but if I do this. You know, I, I'm going to write it as though I'll never get another chance to write it. So it was never, oh, I have a 50-issue plan. With this, um, it's really different. Once I built Metal, the whole challenge was, how do I do something different than I've done in superhero comics? And ultimately, the thing that's fun about it, too, is it is one story, and it is about one thing. I mean, Justice League is about one thing. And it's similar to what I'm writing about in Last Night on Earth with Greg Capullo. It's similar to what I write about in in Witches and... A bunch of places, you know, at certain theme, certain, oh, there are a couple of themes that I, I like to mine from different angles a lot because they're personal. And one of the idea for Justice League really is that Luthor comes to believe that our, um, who, what we've developed into is at odds with our nature, you know, with right. our, and our nature is small and selfish and predatory and, um, and he believes that doom, which in its original meaning was fate, is a path towards returning us to who we're supposed to be. And that evolution, our natural evolution is is to embrace those kind of baser inclinations. And that all of this stuff that the heroes have led us to believe about ourselves or that we've believed about ourselves and finds its kind of natural extension in these heroes is just a cage. It's like a falsity and it's led us down a path that has... It's completely antithetical to our nature, our natural progression, who we're supposed to be, our growth, and our our actual destiny, um, and that it's unnatural to him. So the symbols, doom and justice, are opposed. You know, one points down, one points up, one's circumscribed by. Uh, they're both. They have meaning, like the actual the hall of justice and the hall of doom. The the way the seven lines that are the seven forces transect. The circle for for the Hall of Justice symbol, the justice symbol, those yeah. lines reach above the semicircle. The semicircle is supposed to be 
um, are basically what's, what's supposed to be possible for us. And so it says, you know, transcend your biology, be more than you can, you're supposed to be. The doom symbol has that same circle and builds a pyramid beneath it with lines running down like roots. And it looks like the hall of doom, right? And that doom symbol is supposed to say, embrace the limitations of, don't reach for the things you're not supposed to be. You build a pyramid, you build a castle living inside of, of the expectations of your own body of your own brain of the things you're of, of your nature of your roots all of that and so those symbols are diametrically opposed um and so as for all of that kind of fancy architecture and all of it it's basically a story about one guy believing that our nature is to be selfish and bad and one guy believing that the whole the way that we uh, our nature is to reach beyond what we think is possible for us and um pitting them to, against each other at a moment when everything seems to be at its most cataclysmic and everything's breaking open and saying you have to choose one or the other. Like, and, and if you bet wrong, you lose and to the rest of the world. Cause I feel as though that's what this moment is, you know, in time it's somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, we're facing all of these intense, you know, these almost seemingly insurmountable challenges and we're more, entrenched in our own positions and and divided than ever and when you say lex wants to be like selfish <laughs> and uh take what's his it reminds me of certain politicians yeah well i mean and again the, the book is not um i always try and you know the heroes are here to, to show us the best in ourselves and right. the villains are there to appeal to our worst so it's not um you know, it's not open. My politics are really obvious and I, I'm vocal about them privately and I'm vocal about them on social media when I think it's appropriate for me. And, you know, I, sure. I certainly admire people that uh, don't talk about politics at all. And I admire people that are constantly talking about them. So there's no right or wrong with that for me with social media or any of it for creators. But um, what you just described shows there's a deeper meaning to the story and that's what makes it so rich, I think. Right. Well, that what I, I write, I write a lot of this for my kids and you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a lefty liberal, all that stuff. But for me, it's what I'm trying to say with the story. Isn't um, it's about, it, it, it's, it's somebody saying we're at the end of times, right? So just mm -hmm. get what's yours and mm -hmm. let's live it out in a way that not only what Luther discovers with Perpetua is the fulfillment of this, kind of promise that he he saw he sees in us which is he his whole life luthor has felt you know angry at how small he is you know and the fact that he's so brilliant and yet everyone likes superman all of that and how fast his <laughs> yeah. life goes all of the things we talked about earlier and what he discovers in perpetua through his father's legacy is that the universe as it was first started had humanity in a much more powerful and predatory position they were combined with DNA from Martians, from Danagarians, but humans were the sort of chosen son of the celest super celestial that made us, made this universe. And they lived forever, and they had all kinds of abilities, and they were terrifying. And when that universe was discovered by, um, when Perpetua was, was turned in by her sons, essentially the Monitor, Anti-Monitor, and World Forger, and the universe was started properly, um, you know, uh, humans were sort of relegated to a very small position. We don't have powers. We live very short lives. And so Luthor feels the ghost of this and says, finally, I'll be the greatest hero of all humanity to put us back where we were supposed to be. And instead of being these small, humble things, 
we will be the great conquerors. So follow me. Let's take what's ours. Let's conquer the universe. It's what we're supposed to be. And, you know, um, Lex and Merchant Manor says the opposite. We're at a moment when all of these things are coming to light, these terrible truths, these amazing truths. We have to rise above and help save everything together. The only way we'll do it is if we all have no ego and connect to each other and so on. And so it's a story that, you know, I, I have strong beliefs about about ethics and politics and ethics and our leaders and all of those things. And, sure. You know, sure. when somebody is a trash person, I see no value <laughs> in following them in yeah. general, regardless of what side they're on politically. I, if my, you know, I, I would not vote for somebody who had my policies, who I thought was a garbage human being, right? regardless of what side I'm, you know, on. Um, so the story very much is about, uh, is not about any sort of, you know, um, pointed, uh, sort of political, um, uh, thread, but at the same time, it's about trying to find the best in ourselves and the best in the people that we follow and taking the leap to try and be better, even when it seems that it would be not only easier, but more advantageous to do anything to win, to just be to embrace that nature of why should we all collectively try and do this thing that's probably impossible, that we'll probably lose when the legacy will be to leave something, to make something better that we'll only get a tiny slice of in some way, or our children hopefully will get better thing, when instead I can get everything I want if I'm not good right now. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. that's Justice League to me. And it's it plays off. Each arc is, is modular, and you can jump on or jump off anywhere you want. But you know, or jump on anywhere you want. <laughs> but the, um, but the, uh, the, the basic conflict in it that runs from issue one to issue 50 between Luther and Martian Manhunter is the escalating, escalating variations on that same theme. The last time we spoke, uh, when we, when you were, I think you were just starting all-star Batman. Um, you, you had said a similar thing that it's, it's about now it's about the politics. It's not overtly political, but there's still politics tied to it. Um, so clearly you're passionate about this, which is great. You know, I don't, I don't see value in writing things that don't, right. That don't speak to the things that keep you up at night. And like you just said, like you write this for your kids. I mean, it's a lesson in a sense, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I'm like. You, you, it's the first lesson of the class I teach is that you have to write the story that you would find and pick up on the shelf today and would change your life. Like that would make maybe your favorite story. Does Mm -hmm. it does not have to be over. It can be about. I mean, it can be it could be about uh, you know deep seated fears that you have from childhood. It could be about um, a hope that you have, something funny and wonderful. But whatever it is, you have to approach it with a passion that may, has it mean something to you. And my, you know, um, the things that keep me up at night are really for my kids at this point, where I worry that you know, in some way, and and I think you can see that stuff affecting my work as I go because I had kids when I was just breaking in you know what I mean so you can see my work change like for me and my my concerns right now are the appeals constantly to doing anything to win and entrenching Mm. yourself in a subjective point of view that allows for a complete lack of ethics and the erosion of any kind of central sort of central barometer for fact, for truth, for morality, for all of it. And that I find that to be terrifying combined with, you know, I'm writing another, I'm doing a bunch of creator own work on the side that I'm squirreling away for, to kind of announce and do 
in a number of months. And a lot of the, another kind of theme over there that's sort of similar to this, I'm doing a book that's very much about with, uh, I'm not supposed to say, but I'm working with a lot of the artists that you see me working with in Justice League and other books that I'm working on. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about Charles Sewell, but that's a different project, isn't it? I am doing Charles. one with him that we're going to announce really soon. I'm working with an artist nice. on that that he's we're working with a big artist on that that he's worked with a lot that I've worked with in the past as well. Um, that's a really fun. It has it has Land of the Lost qualities, and it's very much a sci-fi. It's very very fun. I can't wait. We're going to announce awesome. it really soon. It, it's being drawn right now, so it's like very cool. But um, that's with Charles Sewell. I'm doing one with um, an artist that I've worked with many times, um, uh, or not many times, but I've worked with pretty extensively before. It's a horror book um, that that makes a new classic monster, um, but it's really about film. It's about a lost. Oh. It's about a lost 1930s classic uh, that burned oh, cool. in a fire, and this guy. I'll just tell you. It's basically about a. <laughs> it's about a guy who finds a fragments of a film as he's digitizing old films uh, in his job at this studio, and it's from this famous film that um, burned in the '30s that was supposed to be a masterpiece called *Night of the Ghoul*. And um, uh, he goes and he finds the screenwriter director uh, who's still alive in this rest home, and he goes there to confront him about what happened to this film. And the whole story is an interplay between the horrifying things that unfold in this rest home and the uh, fragments of this film that are actually drawn into the book itself. So I'm really, really really happy with it. Yeah. And then the third thing, um, which is really a big one is a sci-fi noir that I'm doing with another artist that I have worked with on both justice league and, and elsewhere. And, um, and so many hints, you're giving us so many hints. (laughs) Yeah. It's about, and it's about, um, it's about uh, what we were just talking about, where, you know, um, a future in which you can insulate yourself entirely from things, skin the world how you want, and uh, essentially, you know, what 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 scares me, I think, um, it's a detective story in a world like that. So it's kind of an artist's feast, you know. But what it what it um, really uh, is about for me, and going back to what we were just talking about, is the danger and the wonder of being able to sort of surround yourself with your own kind of cultural bubble wrap now, like my kids, their favorite show is the office, the Simpsons, like, and they and their friends watch these shows that are 10, 20 years old. They'll rediscover um, Macross saga right together and they'll watch that together. And that's their communal cultural touchstone. They don't have, Thursday night cheers is on. They don't have like, you know, and (laughs) they don't even have a top 10 the way we had, you know, MTV, whatever, TRL, all that stuff when I was growing up. Now it's like you find your stuff and that's your stuff. And that's wonderful and exciting. And it offers so many opportunities, by the way, for indie comics to be IP intellectual property for Netflix and for, you know, it's a new era and a golden era right now in a bubble, if hopefully not a bubble, but the start of a, an amazingly fertile time for comics to be translated into other medium because there's such an aggressive push for um, independent work in other medium because there's so many platforms that want their own shows and own movies. Right, but right. So there's all kinds of crazy excitement around it, but the downside is if there is no kind of – and I'm not saying there should be some central culture because who is the gatekeeper of that and so on and so forth. But without the danger in sort of everybody being able to kind of formulate their own cultural pocket entirely, 
I think sometimes is a, is any kind of lack of intrusion of anything beyond that. And you wind up insulating yourself in, in ways that can be intensely provincial and you, you block yourself off from anything that sort of, you know, you don't want to see or hear. And that, I think that can lead to intense divisiveness. You know, I'm not saying there are things you don't want to block out because a million percent there are, and right. there's, tox- there's toxicity and there's groups of people and people you, you know, block, get, a- get away from. But all I mean is as a kind of um, giant glacial kind of trend, there's amazing things about that that I see and I'm excited for my kids to have. And there's agency and there's power and subjectivity to it. And then there's also, there's something scary to me about the idea that they don't need to learn or see or interact with anything that isn't their choice. Because uh, there's so many choices. Right. Well, I mean, there's nothing that invades their life that news-wise they can decide, well, I'm of these political beliefs. I don't have to listen right. to anything that contradicts that. Right, well, right. I like these types of things. I never have to venture outside of that because I have so many choices and, and I'm designed at this point to binge them and all of it. Like, right. So Not anyway, to I know binging. I'm down yeah. like a big rabbit hole with you and I apologize for like going on <laughs> this right. like screed. But I guess what I'm saying is that... Um, at the end of the day, I hope what you'll take away if you're listening to this or whatever is that the stuff that I'm working on um, right now in all different ways, I'm at the point in my career where I feel like extremely grateful for you know everything I've gotten to do. Um, I don't feel like I have things to prove anymore. I'm really writing for myself and it's the most fun I've ever had between Justice League and all of this and the thing that I say to my students a lot of the time too beyond that kind of golden rule of writing once you establish yourself and you are writing you have to always be your own favorite writer and your your own the writer that you're most excited by and if you fall into a rut where it would be real easy for me at this point and it would have been easy for me to stay on Batman and Rebirth and just do small Batman stories you know and just do continue to do what I was doing because I had a lot I had a Scarecrow story I had a couple others that I didn't get to do but, you know, to me, at some point, you have to see when you're falling into a rut that's becoming easy for you. And with yeah. each arc of Batman, I tried to do something that pushed my own boundaries. And even though now, luckily, because it went over well, I think we're seen as having a relatively, you know, um, a relatively established run. At the time, you know, we introduced a psychotic son to James, Jim Gordon, we yeah. introduced the possible brother to Batman. We did a new origin. There was a lot of back and forth. And so with this stuff now, I'm trying to stay exciting to myself. And the way I do that is by doing a 50-issue story. I've never done that before. Or Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, or or trying different, you know, create your own. And co-written one is, you know, trying different kinds of books in different ways. And that really, uh, what I'd say is the takeaway for me, and then I'll shut up, is basically that I hope that what comes across to anyone listening is that with all my meandering about life and death and subjectivity <laughs> and what my kids go yeah. through. Is it's a there, journey you've taken us on. Well, I'm trying to write about the stuff that I'm writing for myself and I'm trying to write sure. about the things that I hope other people connect to are worried about or hopeful about all of that stuff. So I promise you this, like as much as, um, you know, as much as, uh, I'm, I also can be a big P.T. Barnum from my own shit and go out there and be <laughs> like, how many times can I possibly post about, please pick this book up and so on, and this is the best ever, and blah, blah, blah. I try and be really honest and transparent about 
you know, how much I care about the stuff I'm working on. And I mean it like the books are about things that I care about. Batman who laughs. If you don't read that and see me, the first, I'll give you one example. The first page of Batman who laughs about Batman's happiest memory from childhood is my first happiest memory from childhood. Oh, wow. So that, you know, that my father read it and was like, that's you. You did. That's when we used to do that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. exactly. And that book is intensely personal about my own worst fears, you know, and that. So each thing I'm trying to work on, as different as they are and as crazy as they are, are very are um, are very intimately about the stuff that I hope other people can connect to because they matter to me, you know. So that's why I feel okay being out there and being a bear on a tricycle for all of that <laughs> the time. Since we're talking about your career uh, and like your growth and and whatnot. This is a crazy question, so you don't have to answer it. If your career followed the plot of the Odyssey, okay, yeah. stay with me. Where would you be in the narrative? Oh, okay. now? Oh, yeah, I always so- like to think that I would be. I, for me, I mean, I love the Odyssey. By the way, it's like my oh, cool. one of my absolute favorite things. And there's hints of it in the book that I'm doing with Greg Capullo, the Last Night on Earth. Actually, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it loosely there's some loose architecture around that, but. Um, Huh, you know, I definitely would have made it off the island with Cersei already. <laughs> I definitely got out of my illusion. That's and by the way, like that's the first step of that book is meant to mirror that. Um but the uh Oh cool. The uh where would I be? I mean I'm not I'm not in any dire strait. I'm not like in the Cyclops cave. I mean I don't feel right. like um you know, but I'm also I don't I don't feel like um I don't feel home in the way that you know, I don't feel like I'm at the end of my trip. You know, I mean I honestly it's right. hard because he was so trying to get back to, you know, to Penelope and Telemachus and that stuff that I'm not, I don't feel like I'm trying to get back anywhere. I mean, I'm really feel like, um, right now it's the freest I've ever felt in terms of trying new things. And, and honestly, you know, I don't want to be like to, uh, the writing on the wall in any real way too quickly, but you know, I don't know. I, I don't, this isn't the role that I ever saw for myself at DC. You know, I never set out yeah. to be, have a corporate, I have a corporate contract with them right now. In addition to my writing contract, that's about mm-hmm. the development of events like metal. It's about, you know, training and coming writer stuff like all that. And, you know, doing justice league, having that story be a lot of the DNA of what we're doing. You're the villain is built out of a lot of what we're doing, obviously. And then if we do do a kind of metal two or crisis, that stuff's obviously built out of the stuff that we're doing. This, these pressures and these kind of, um, these responsibilities, I love them and I love who I work with. And I love the fact that it allows me to be collaborative in ways that I haven't been able to be, you know, when I was doing, I wasn't able to on Batman, but I don't have this role in me for, that long meaning i'm not this isn't i'm not i'm not looking to be cco of dc comics or uh you know get a job in california doing that that's not Mm -hmm. i'm always a writer i like being a comic writer and for me there's there's a certain kind of um i like being in the in the pole position i like you know being in the in a in a seat right now where i get to steer things I didn't seek it out, but I'm happy to do it because I believe in the stories we're telling and the people we get to work with, Brian Bendis and Tom King, everybody like really excited about it. But, you know, I, Justice League does not, like if we do this and it leads to an event, 
Um, I don't see a side on the, something on the other side that's like, and then wait till you see it's going to get bigger. I see <laughs> right, it right. as like, this is my love letter and swan song to being this deeply involved in superhero comics. I need to be able to do more of my own stuff. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't do a book at DC or do two books at DC, but this, like I did with that all-star Batman, you know, I step, step away a little bit, you know, be able to be able to do stuff that doesn't have the same pressure to drive the line the same way. So I don't know where I am in the Odyssey thing. As well, remember to, uh, the sky, the Skyla Skyla when he's uh, navigating between the straits. Oh yeah. Yes. That's you. Maybe. That's a really good. No, that's good because I really feel like I feel like the I'm being honest with you and I know it sounds hokey, but I honestly feel the best phase of my career is about to start where I I I've I've done so much of what I I, I wanted to do in superhero comics and you know, I still want to do it. I want to go to Marvel at some point. I want to work there's a lot of artists I want to work with, their characters I want to do. So there's yeah. I have a lot left to do with DC and a lot I want to do with Marvel, but I feel past the point of proving anything to anybody mm. or to myself, honestly, about it. And it's more mm. about I feel very um, excited to be able to do more of my own stuff and to take some of the pressure off the uh, kind of line driving, you know, uh, uh, sort of um, needs that I'm under right now. Do you know what I mean? Right. 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 Yeah. So totally. I, yeah. I feel it's a transitional, transitional period for me. I'm all in with everything DC right now, and that's it. I'm not letting it go. I'm just like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, I'm gonna steer this shit as, as hard <laughs> yeah, totally. as I can at 60, 90 miles an hour, 100 miles, and I want you as a reader out there to be like, that was the best era that I remember for a while with all the cool shit happening all over the DCU. Credit to all the creators, you know, doing everything awesome, you know that. But I, if I if I'm gonna drive a lot, I'm gonna drive it. You know what I mean? I'm gonna take it, and I want to make it as fun and crazy as possible. So there's no way I'm not gonna. If you give me that role, then my goal is to make it so that you feel like you're getting five times the amount you you're paying for. Right. It. Makes me wonder: Are you gonna close that door on Batman with Last Night on Earth? Yeah, that is that's the point of that book. I mean, that's yeah. the. You know, I'm not. I look. I'm totally the Rolling Stones, right? I know I'm going to be like, I'm not going to be singing Satisfaction <laughs> when I'm 55, and I'll be 80, yeah, being yeah. like, you know, with my wig. But I mean, yeah. like, I I can totally see. I'm sure I I have more Batman in me. Like, I have stories. I have stories I want to do. But this is meant as a kind of closure to the whole saga that Greg and I did. Meaning. Mm-hmm. It it re- revisits a lot of what we did, and it also it's a story that I had in my mind for a long time. I pitched it to Greg back when we were doing um, uh, Zero Year. Uh, it oh, came wow. to That's me when Grant Morrison is the one that made me do it. I mean, he said he told me when I was really freaking out when I had Bruce Wayne uh, for the first time, and I was scared. I saw him at San Diego, and I remember we were right outside the elevator, and he was just like we were on our way to a to you know get a drink, and he was like. Listen, he's like, what you need to do is you need to give your version a birth and a death. Mm, and that's mm-hmm. it. And he's like, make him yours. And Zero Year was the birth. And at this, I simultaneously kind of wrote, in my head at least, the the death or the end of that story. And this is that. Yeah. So I'm nice. very, yeah, it is. It is a, it's weird because I feel in a lot of ways, maybe this goes back to your Odyssey question. Yeah. But Batman Who Laughs is really a, a full circle for Black Mirror. You know, and uh, extends a lot of those themes and comes back to some of the material from that, but in a bigger way. And the book with Greg is a closure on the stuff I did with Batman. And 
Justice League for me in a way is the biggest possible love letter to superhero comics I'll ever be able to do, I think. Can I ask you, Greg at Fan Expo Boston mentioned that you guys were working on Swamp Thing together. Are you going to, is that true or are you going to close the door on that too? No, we have an idea. I have a story that I didn't get to do with that that is oh. really big and fun and he really wants to draw him. So uh-huh. our plan right now is we, we have another, we're two books done, almost almost done. He has about 10 pages left of book two of last night. Each book is 50 pages. So, um, oh, wow. Yeah, so it's 150 pages. It starts in May. It goes, they're doing bi-monthly, so it's May, July, um, uh, September. Um, so he has about, you know, 50 pages, 60 pages total left. That's about, you know, four months, I'd say, three, four months. Sure. Um, yeah. And then after that, we are either going to start really big stuff for DC or, you know, we. I, I really want, he wants to finish The Creech. I want to do that with him. That's a, a three-issue gig. And also, um, I want to... Um, I have a creator-owned idea called Infernal Machines with him that I really want to do that I think would be really bad. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna play around, you know. But I mean, you are navigating so many straits right now. It's <laughs> it, it's a lot. It's a lot. But it's you know it's staggered. It's staggered, and it's you know I'm, yeah. I'm ahead of my DC stuff. I'm I'm all about it. You know I'm I'm like a million percent in. But I also I'm trying to create. We're actually we're building a writing studio on our property for the. I've been waiting to do this a long oh, time. Yeah. yeah, it's down yeah. out. It's out in the woods. Um, but it's it's got like three glass walls, and none of them face our house, which makes me. You know, <laughs> I can be like, I'm here. I'm not, there is no one else in the world, and so on, and whatever. Very cool. But yeah. um, these projects, like that's what keeps me sane as a writer and excited, is being able to work in a, diff- a variety of different you know formats and having stuff that's totally my own that nobody can say. Well, that character had a different history a few issues ago, and what about mm-hmm. this? It's my I made him up, so you, you know, whatever. That um, it's essential to me, and you know, having those things in addition to this, they're not at odds with each other. I've always needed both, so mm-hmm. having American Vampire or Witches and some of the stuff we're doing, so you know, all that stuff is 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 um, synergistic in my opinion, at least for me. And exciting, I think, for anybody who's a fan of yours, no matter what title you're writing, I think. Thanks, man. I appreciate Cause that. Because it's sort of like, I don't know, as a critic, I think I I tend to get to know a writer because I read it so much. And it's interesting to see how you flex your muscles in different ways. Uh, That's what I'm telling you. Like, I'd rather, again, there's a lot of stuff that would be easy at this point, not because it's easy to do, but because you learn it and it's muscle memory, like writing mm-hmm. a short Batman story. But you know, I'd rather take a swing and fall on my face trying something that's risky, that makes me excited about myself, um, than not. So that's where I, that's, I try and make that my compass right now, you know? So it's, that's why trying all these different things, you know, I want, I want to, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite with my own students. And instead, you know, teaching also, it keeps me honest and keeps me young to be able to be like, you have to, you should do these things as a writer and you got to go home and do them. And that's one of the things I tell them. So, and I love working with different people. I mean, Jorge, I have to throw some stuff out. Like the idea that I work Capullo, Jorge Jimenez, you know, Francis Manipal, Jim Chung, uh, Jock, you know, the guys that I've been working with on, on this book, Howard Porter, you know, and not just this book. I mean, sorry, I meant all books like that I'm yeah. working on now. And then, right you know, the guys I'm working with in the indie world, they have one thing in common, honestly, as different as their styles are, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I really get, I'm really attracted to people who are hungry all the time to evolve as creators. And, you know, Jock is the, somebody, for example, he always wants to try something he hasn't before and always is up for something different. He never wants to do the same thing twice. And that's the same way Greg is, you know, he's like, I don't want to do it if it's going to be boring. And same, it makes me better, you know, and Jorge is like insanely like that. It's amazing. And he's young. The dude is like the, the not only the handsomest dude in all comics, but he's like <laughs> like he has endless energy. He's like twenty nine or thirty years old, and just I can't even keep up with the guy. But that passion and that oh yeah, it's infectious. Yeah, and and he he wants to get better on the page constantly. And it makes me want to get better. So that's I, I'm attracted to those people. You know what I mean? Like that sense of I love working with people who are constantly hungry. It makes me hungry. And I think our listeners are hungry for more. <laughs> of your of your writing i hope so let me just say really quick too yeah that honestly um adventures in poor taste man you guys have been really supportive from for a long time like you and i spoke all the way back in what 2012 for the first time or 2000 yeah it's been seven years yeah i mean so but but the site everything all the support over the years really means a lot and i appreciate it i'll always turn up if you ask me to come on to these things and that stuff and you've always been honest and told me when I'm doing a good job or when I need to improve stuff. And it means a lot to me to have places that I can look to for that. So I appreciate it. And thank you. Yeah. Appreciate thank that. You. Yeah. A million percent. Thank you. Yeah. And whenever we're, we're critical, I, I hope that we are, uh, uh, it's helpful, not just, uh, you know, the snarky, angry kind of thing that some yeah, people no, do. always. And I, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, that's, I think people misunderstand sometimes that, you know, I have, I have, I have a very, I think at this point, quite a thick skin, like you don't, you don't write Batman for six, seven years and oh my not God, get yeah. call, you get called everything under the book. Meaning I was called, you know, when I, if I created a character that was one way, I got called SJW, you know, I'm dropping the book. I hate this. Why you yeah. blah, blah, blah. If I did something else, I was called racist. I was called everything. Like I got, I got a lot of stuff, you know, privately. It's lots got, of process. Yeah. Right. Well, you get used to understand it. What you come to understand is that even when people are usually uh, shitty to you, they're doing it out of a sense of passion for the characters. Sometimes they're not, and they're just culture warriors, and they're there to just be whatever, and they don't. But for the most part, when people come at you and say, I hate this, it's because they care about the characters or you know, and so on. And that I'm always up for listening to criticism. I love criticism. You know, I, I will hire people to keep me honest as editors all the time. And, you know, it's always welcome. It's just, I do believe that once it crosses over into a territory, if you're, if you're happy you read something that didn't work, you're doing something wrong. Meaning if, if the review to me is gleeful about a failure Mm. in a book, Mm -hmm. that's where you're crossing into bad. Like do it a million percent. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. Roasting and that stuff. Go ahead. But it doesn't appeal to me at that point is what I'm saying is once it as a, as a creator and, it, it shuts down the conversation for me, meaning I don't, I'm not angry. I never lash out about it. I just don't, if you, and, and not even about me, like usually when I see something like that, I'm, I'm looking at reviews for books that I want to pick up. But when I see something that says, you know, seems to be happy that this thing didn't work and likes to make right. fun of it, yeah. that to me, even if there's constructive stuff in it, it just, it comes from a negative place. I'm not into it. I I've spoken to so many like folks about criticism and the people who have a good uh, an easy time writing negative reviews 
tend to just revel in in, in trashing something. Well, I know, and, and it comes from a sensitive place for me, just because I see how much time and work nobody. Oh yeah, nobody for puts sure. a comic together like. No. I think there's a misbelief that like people moonlight or like carpet bag and comics for the money or for whatever it is and that they don't care right. or that, oh, they threw this issue together because they were lazy or they were tired or basically very few comics get put together because of any of that stuff. Usually if a comic doesn't work, it's because, you know, mistakes are made on uh, for the opposite reason because someone cares so much about what they're trying to do that they miss the forest for the trees sometimes or Mm -hmm. editorial has things they need and you know but the idea that you would enjoy or revel in the failure of the thing to me is just unappealing as a kind of you know as a platform I, i don't react to those i just those reviews don't help because i feel like it comes from a place of bad faith it doesn't yeah. mean that I, I again I totally support people being able to do it. I if you like listening to that or reading sure. that, all the power to you. Nothing against it, but I, I'm saying one of the reasons I like your site so much is that it's always helpful, thoughtful, measured, astute criticism. You know, or really often, and the the feeling I get is that if something doesn't work, the point of the criticism is to say this is how it will it could work. Take right, it and leave right. it. You know, this is what we think would make it better. And comes from a place of wanting a book to be good. That's, mm-hmm. you know, if you enjoy it being bad and you enjoy writing a review, trashing something to me, it's just, yeah, I just we never have a, been that person who I just, that doesn't, again, yeah, no, I, I won't keep repeating myself, but not, it's, not, a, it's not for me. I, again, I, I support it. Everyone should be able to do it. If it's your, yeah. if it's your, if it's your jam, go fucking go do it. It's totally fine, <laughs> but it's not. We, I, I like sites like you and other sites that are, are more measured. We have a stable of about 20 uh, critics that come and go uh, or write a review every week. And something I keep reiterating to them is, um, you know, you have to approach the book, not only understanding like what went into it, but what is trying to do. I mean, I feel like any critic can review anything, be it a book for a two-year-old or a book for, you know, a very specific audience if they approach it in that way. And I think looking at it in that light can help shed more truth. That's I feel the like... first, dude. I have four rules for credit for workshop with. The, oh, really? Yeah, the first the first rule before you do anything. What do you think this is trying to achieve? That's right. always the first. That that has to be your compass because mm-hmm. you might get it wrong, but then you're approaching it in good faith because all your criticism is about. Then the second thing is what worked well given that. Mm-hmm. Given that, like, okay, well, this book is about, you know, Batman's uh, fear of mortality. The things that worked in that regard were this. What didn't work in that regard? The things that missed the point, given what you were trying to do, are these. And the fourth thing is, what are your suggestions on how to make it better? And that's it. Like, But then it, it, it makes sure that the criticism is always, you know, focused on the trying to help the writer achieve what they you think they wanted not like and the example i give is like let's say somebody writes a story that has completely different politics than you your goal is not to argue the politics of of that story with them even if you hate the politics of their story if you're workshopping it your goal is to try and um you know as long i mean obviously if they're like you know if it's evil and it's like you know that's a different (laughs) thing but i'm saying if somebody's trying to make a point you disagree with you can talk to them and you should personally about that point 
But in workshop, your job is actually to try and make that story better given that point, more convincing Mm -hmm. given that point. But the goal of criticism that I enjoy the most personally. All right, Scott, thanks so much for your time. This has been really fascinating. It's like talking about your career, but also some of your upcoming books. And um, just again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, anytime, Dave. Honestly, I mean it. Let's make it a more regular thing. I would love to do it again soon. I don't want to wait seven years to talk to you again next time. All right, guys, there's the interview. I hope you liked it. Uh, It was a lot of fun. Scott said he'd like to be on the show again uh, as much as possible. So he'd probably be on the show in the next month or two again. And uh, thank you for listening. I just want to point out uh, Forrest is going to be at ECCC next weekend. That is the Seattle Comic-Con of theirs. Uh, It's March 14th to March 17th. He's going to be reporting live from the show floor. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Chris, for coming on and co-hosting with me. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I think we we both uh, shared some things. We shared ourselves. Uh, I wish I was in the age of (laughs) X-Men. Please like this show. Uh, Please review, if you can, on uh, iTunes. And and subscribe and tell your friends. I think this is going to be a great show that we're going to be doing weekly from now till the end of time. And maybe I'll be on. Maybe Scott will be on. Could be. Any, 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 at any moment, they could both be on. <laughs> That'd be exciting. We're going to throw up a, a, a AIPT Comics bat signal, and you guys will just rush in. And what if the Joker appears? <laughs> then I think we're in trouble. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.